Hi. Hello. Welcome to the next episode of the Brio in the Box podcast. We are doing part two of our May is Mental Health Month. Yeah. So let's recap a little bit of episode one. Yeah. We talked about what mental health is, what it is not, the state of current psychiatric care. We talked, I talked <laughs> lots about the science. Yeah. Lots of that nerdy stuff. Last week on our Week at a Glance post, I put up a discussion between Andrew Huberman and Chris Palmer. Andrew Huberman's a professor of neurobiology at Stanford School of Medicine, and Chris Palmer is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard School of Medicine. So two bigwigs, hmm? and they're discussing Chris Palmer's essentially brain energy yep. theory of mental health. Sort of, He's at the forefront of what's happening in psychiatry right now. That, as we've been hammering, mental health is not separate from physical health. The things that manifest themselves as depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, the four major mental health disorders, are at the fundamental level a problem with the brain cell's ability to make energy at the level of the mitochondria. Right. So the mitochondria is everything having to do with metabolism and making energy. And so when your metabolism, your metabolic health is poor in your body, so is it brain. Right. And if you want to deep dive in that, I really, really recommend reading Chris Palmer's new book called Brain Energy. If you really want to understand the full gamut of exactly how mitochondria basically controls any, everything mm -hmm. <laughs> about life. Yeah. And so, I think it's important to note that that's, it's still a theory in works, right? He talks about this as his theory on why it's working, but it, it certainly answers more than any other theory about mm -hmm. the chemical imbalances in your brain or any of that kind of stuff. It certainly does a much better job of answering all the whys and hows. Mm -hmm. So definitely worth, you know, mm -hmm. reading. Like you said, it's cutting edge stuff. So yeah. hopefully that's kind of in the future of development. Yeah. Know? And the word theory in science doesn't mean, doesn't have the same meaning as we use it like colloquially where it means I have a theory, meaning like I yeah. have a guess. A theory is an overarching unifying explanation that describes a variety of observations from a wide variety of fields. Mm -hmm. So the brain energy theory explains a lot of what we're seeing about psychiatry. So that's why it gets elevated to the level of theory and not just hypothesis or yeah. guess. So yeah. yeah, sometimes people misinterpret what that word means in yeah. science. So yeah, super interesting. Love Chris Palmer. He's very much at the forefront of it. And a, a big part of what he's advocating because mental health is about metabolic health is nutrition and lifestyle factors right. that can strongly prevent cure, reverse, or put into remission the major mental health disorders, yep. which is awesome. It puts some agency back in the hands of the patient. It gives the practitioners more tools that they can use to help people, things they can teach them. Yeah. So we can try to make things better yep. for people. And I, th I think, as always, we need to note that we are not doctors. And yeah. all of this advice that we're giving out, it's just based on what we've read and what mm. we've learned, what has worked for us. Yeah. There's certainly no perfect cure for major debilitating mental health issues. So we're talking more about making things better for yourself and hopefully some preventative maintenance mm -hmm. on how to avoid dealing with mental health issues yourself. Yeah, We learned in the first episode we did how abundant mental health problems are and yeah. we've both personally been affected by it. And this is a lot of the stuff that really just worked for us. Yeah. So we're going to touch on five major areas yeah. that Things that you can control, lifestyle, diet, lifestyle factors, things that can move the needle, both that we've personally experienced and that the science shows strongly can really make a difference. Yeah. Social relationships and community, stress management, sleep, nutrition, and exercise are the five major things we're going to touch on. I think, like you said, that there is not one 
single factor cure because with chronic disease, there is not one single factor cause. So, mm-hmm. you know, where medical science made crazy advancements in the 20th century was single factor diseases. Like 100% of people who are vitamin C deficient will get scurvy. And 100% of people with scurvy, if you give them vitamin C, will recover. Right. That's a single single factor, single cure, 100% cause. Right. But we're talking about complex systems sure. here. And there's so many moving parts in these complex systems when it comes to the, the function of the body and metabolism and energy, yeah. the immune system, that there are many moving parts and many little levers and things that may or may not make a difference for mm-hmm. any one person. And maybe combining them is more effective than trying to attack them all one at a time. So yeah. we're going to give you a whole bunch of ideas and tools and do with them <laughs> what you please. <laughs> yeah. And this list is by no means in any order because yeah, all of no. these things are like, it's more of a web of interconnectedness yeah. instead of just a list of separate things because a lot of these things build on each other and affect each other. So yeah, this is just an overall idea of all the possible, some of the possible stuff you can. Someday it would be cool to really illustrate a web. Yeah. Of, well, you know, sleep influences metabolism, but metabolism influences the immune system and mm-hmm. the immune system influences your sleep. And, you know, like, all of the different connected things. I think it's neat. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to start out with social relationships. Mm-hmm. And in that we're including like hobbies, community, a few different things basically to, to keep, you, yeah. keep you going. Humans, one of the unique characteristics of a human is that we are deeply, deeply social creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few really interesting books. One by a guy named Bill Von Hippel called The Social Leap. That yep. if you really want to dig in and understand why our brains work the way they do. From an evolutionary perspective, super interesting. I'm reading one right now. You're reading it too called Burn by yeah. Herman Ponzer. Also touches quite a bit on the evolutionary advantage of humans becoming so social and cooperative in groups. Yeah. So at the deepest level, we have the need to belong to yeah. something, to a group. Isolation is so stressful to humans that it's considered cruel and unusual punishment, mm-hmm. right? Solitary confinement. People can die from literally just being alone. Yeah. Because in the wild, no human can survive on their own. Yeah. We, we can't be lonely. In older people, loneliness is a stronger predictor of mortality than cancer. Right. So we have a deep need to belong to things. Yeah. So we have to have good social connections to have good mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that building up relationships is a difficult thing as an adult, especially when so much of our time in life is you're in your cubicle at work mm. or you're, you're on your phone instead of interacting with people. You just look around and the the amount of just information and distractions and stuff that's out there, it's really easy to get caught up in just doing your own thing and spending all your time alone. We're like around more people than ever. You go walk around New York City yeah. and you're just surrounded by millions of people, but you're like isolated from all of them. You don't and, know any of them. Or And, and even the interactions you off, people often have will be like, through a computer or through a phone mm-hmm. or whatever. And there's there's just something different. Right? Like yeah. you have to be way more authentic if you're sitting across from somebody, like having a drink or eating or whatever, mm-hmm. than if you're you can hide behind a computer and you know, like you just you don't get the facial cues and you don't get the tone of the voice and all that kind of stuff when you're just texting somebody. So yeah. there's definitely something important to just being around other people. And that's definitely something that slipped a lot. Yeah. In the last little while. The way modern worlds have changed, religions are declining rapidly. Mm-hmm. That used to be like a, a strong source of community for people. Um, you know, small towns, people are moving out of small towns or they just move away from where they grew up. So you don't have those lifelong connections. Yeah. So and I had actually posted something on our Instagram not that long ago of a clip of Coach Glassman speaking at the Harvard Divinity School. And they had done a big research paper on 
places or communities where people gather outside of religion. Mm -hmm. And I think there were seven different ones that they identified and CrossFit was one of them. Right. And they were talking about how CrossFit was, was really providing a lot of that sense of community and belonging and purpose and fulfillment for people just, you know, within a gym doing some exercise with yeah. your buddies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. And it's funny as, as parents, we really see the value in kids doing activities and meeting other kids and being social and stuff, being right? A team. Yeah. People are constantly putting their kids on soccer teams or baseball. And yes, you want them to learn the sport and you want them to be active and everything. But also part of it is like getting them used to just being around other kids and making friends and just having fun. Yeah. The um, social hierarchy of cooperating. Yeah. And, and then for themselves, they'll often just not do it. Right. And I think men especially tend to really struggle when they don't have those people in their lives. They really struggle to find those people in mm -hmm. their lives. There's a lot more groups, I think, that women tend to do or even traditionally in in old school exercise training, right? Women tended to do more of the classes and stuff like that, whereas men would go and just have their headphones on and flex in front of the yeah, mirror. Yeah, just whatever. <laughs> and a lot of the older, more traditional type things are dying off, like Shriners and, you know. Kinsman Club and yeah. yeah, things that people used to just do for their community. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it's great that CrossFit can provide that that sort of thing. I think the statistics say less and less people are going to church and, mm -hmm. you know, think what you want about church and stuff but the best part about it is the community group and mm -hmm. if you just have people that you interact with once a week then a reason great. to gather a place to gather yeah. a purpose to gather and a community of people that you feel like when it's done well that would help you if you needed help and you would help them there's this reciprocal relationship yeah. and then communities that do good things for for their larger community right mm -hmm. you know, crossfit we try to do that too fundraising events and yeah you know, we support each other the number of times that your gym buddies have helped you move yeah, or, you know, we sure. see that happen among the Brio members and stuff all the time. People just help each other out. Yeah. And it's psychologically comforting to just know that should you need help, people would be there for you. And it's also validating and fulfilling to feel like I can help other people too. If someone throws out the, hey, I need help, like putting the siding on my garage this weekend, anybody around people are like, yeah, that'd be fun. Like, mm -hmm. Do a project with you or help you move or whatever it is. Yeah. It's really interesting to look at the, the dynamic of kids in school because, you know, you have your group of friends, but then there's always your best friend, right? There's always your like, well, this is my best friend and these are my other friends. And yeah. I think adults need that type of thing as well, where you have your community of people where, yeah, you'll help each other move and you'll hang out sometimes and whatever. But then I think you also need that one or few people that you're really close with. And that's the one you share your secrets with and you go to it for advice and you like, mm -hmm. if you really needed to rely on them that's the person you go to. Yeah. For some people that ends up being their family and that's great. But for some yeah. people that don't have that in the family, like they need to find that mm -hmm. somewhere through friendship or, or whatever. Yeah. Your family's kind of like your first community, your first yeah. tribe that you're born into and for better or for worse. Yeah. Right. For some people. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, you know, part of, part of the way we talked about this early in the first episode, like part of me getting through my issues was I had to cut out some relationships. Right. Mm. So I had to basically go no contact with my dad. And part of that process for me, once I, like I, I was no contact with him when I was 15. And then one of the things that I don't really even think what I was aware of at the time, but it really was like a line in the sand was at one point I changed my name. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, I didn't just take my mom's maiden name. I was just like, I need a new start. I'm I'm going from zero here. And, yeah. I, and I changed my name and I was like, I just wanted nothing to do with, with that family. And mm -hmm. I just needed to have that sort of start, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's a really interesting key 
psychological line in the sand. Like mm-hmm. you said, I think that if people are going to stop a cycle of trauma, they often have a a way of becoming reborn, whatever that in yeah. some way or another, right? Sometimes for people, it's like a religious conversion sure. and, or they're like reimagining their identity or they're separating the lineage they came from and they're going, nope, it ends here and I start from zero. So for you, yeah, that was, you changed your last name yeah. separate from your dad's last name. Yeah. And the whole, that whole process was a really weird one because early on I made that decision for myself, but that was like, that was just a me thing, right? As far as everybody else was concerned, there was still the possibility of the relationship and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I remember I would have nightmares, you know, consistently that I would run into him at my work or something, you know, I'd have these, I'd be serving at a, at a restaurant because that was my job at the time. And I would have this nightmare that he had come in and it was an ongoing thing until eventually he did end up drinking himself to death. And I remember we were in Maui when I got the phone call and it was my brother-in-law that, that told me, and I was like, strangely relieved, you know, mm-hmm. which sounds weird to say, but I had, I had mourned the loss of that relationship 10 years earlier okay. when I was like, okay, I need to, I need to end this. This is a toxic relationship and I can't follow down this path. And so I went through all those emotions and all the difficult changes and stuff 10 years ago. And Except so, he was still alive. And yeah, yeah. But as far as he was concerned, you know, like there was times where he did reach out and try to like make contact and stuff and not with me directly, but through my sister. And it wasn't until after he died that it was that the burden was gone, you know, and it sounds terrible to say, but it, it's just, that was the way the relationship was. It mm-hmm. was, it was like a sense of relief where it's, I, now we're all on the same page now because, you know, technically he was dead to me for years. Right. So full closure, it was full closure and I was able to let, and I stopped having nightmares about it. And I, I just, you know, I didn't think about it anymore. Yeah. So I think it's, it's super important to find those healthy relationships that are going to be beneficial to you and, and something that you can contribute to. But then I think it's also super important to get yourself out of a bad situation if you have to, you know? Have boundaries. Yeah, you need to have boundaries as to who you want to be and how you want to be treated and the whole, while it's family, it's like, well, just because it's family doesn't mean it's it's good, you know? Yeah. If you're in a, an abusive relationship or if you're in any kind of toxic relationship, it doesn't matter, Yeah, family or not. Like, you need to get out of that relationship. You don't have to get sucked into someone's cycle of addiction to yeah. your detriment, to ruin your life too. Yeah, and for me, I knew that and to this day still like even now i'm very reluctant to open up to people right as we've discussed <laughs> many times because for me like cutting out that relationship it solved the problems because i knew i wasn't in a i wasn't mentally stable enough to grab the bottom and pull it up i had to worry just about keeping myself from falling down yeah and so for me it was like cut ties and and focus on what i needed to do to get myself out of the bad situation and I never really got to the point where I was like strong enough to try to help him or whatever. And then because I sort of developed that like coping mechanism, right? It's easy to now continue that because it worked for me in the past. And so now it's, well, now I have to still be willing to open myself up to new people and give people a shot and not just assume when somebody does something that I don't like that it should just be Cut a- Cut them out of your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's maladaptive. So we've talked before and previous podcasts about like your biggest strength is also your biggest weakness right and for me being able to remove myself from the situation was powerful and it helped me become who I am today but I can take it too far and also put myself in this little box where I don't let anybody in and that's counterproductive you know yeah so 
yeah, I'm, and I think that's all very self-aware, not that that's ever, you're never like done no. dealing with any of those things, but just, yeah, you know, like the the bumpers when you go bowling and you're like, oh, yeah. bump the side. And you're like, no, I got to correct a little bit and over here. And yeah. yeah, sometimes what was a self-preservation, the right decision at one time stopped serving you at a different point in your life. Yeah. I will say when we first met, we, it was pretty clear. We clicked like immediately. Yeah. <laughs> You moved in with me two months after we were engaged in 10 months. We were married in two years and we've just been grossly in love with each yeah. other for 16 straight years. Nauseatingly so. <laughs> Our poor kids. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say the thing that was immediately attracted me to you was you had clear boundaries and expectations for how you wanted to be treated. You had a lot of self-respect. And I was like, oh, I like this. Right. Mm -hmm. And you would just tell me when I was being an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and you were like, no. And I was like, oh. I'm going to be a better person with this guy. He's going to just tell me. And I just, I hate playing games and I hate subtleties and I'm not good enough at picking up on subtle things that you just, you were just honest with me, not in a yeah. mean way, but just in a, nope, here's the edge. Here's the boundary. Here's where you need to do a little better. And I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah. And I still, it's, you know, one of my favorite qualities about you. And, and it's funny because that wasn't something I was just born with. When I was a teenager, I was very insecure, like I talked about before. And I had relationships where like girls walked all over me and treated me poorly. And, you know, I've had three two or three for two for sure maybe three ex-girlfriends call me out of nowhere like long time after we had broken up and stopped talking to me being like hey i just i wanted to apologize for how i treated you <laughs> because you were a really great guy and i was like i was not great back and i was like what are you drunk like why are you calling me just attracting bitches with so regret <laughs> So it's not that my whole life I've always just had this high standard and high expectation. It's that's something I built and I like oh. evolved over the years through other relationships and just deciding what's important to me and what's not. So it's it's not yeah. something you either have or you don't have. That's something that can be and should be built. You know? Yeah. So I think healthy relationships have a reciprocity to them. Yeah. And not that you do something for someone else because you expect something in return. Yeah. But there does need to be a balance of effort put into the relationship where it becomes toxic, right? You can't be constantly give, 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 give to someone else and they just walk all over you and never yeah. would help you in return. That's that's not a good relationship. There just has to be this. That's what friendships are. That's what community is, is this today me, tomorrow you. And, For sure. you know, you just you can rely on and on each other and trust each other. And then it's a very peaceful place to be. Yeah. There's something very powerful about feeling like you're contributing to something, yeah. right? Like if you can... If you can do something just to do it or just to help others or whatever like that, that, you know, so many people that do charity work and volunteer their time and do all these amazing things, they get way more satisfaction from the process of doing the thing yeah. than if they were paid to do the job or, or yeah. whatever, right? There's something very fulfilling about just finding a community and being able to contribute in one way or another. And then also being able to benefit yourself from that community, right? Yeah. Like you said, today, me, tomorrow, you, and... I think that's a, a super powerful thing. Yeah. I think one of the things I had to learn, so I'm an only child. I was always around adults and I was always, you know, having to way younger than I should have proved that I was capable or deserving of being in the adult situations that I was in. So grew up with this, like, I do it myself, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I had to learn to let people help me. Yeah. You know, people like want to help. And then when they're offering to refuse help from people is it's a way of pushing people away. Yeah. And it's, a, it's a way of preventing letting people get close to you. And it's quite an immature mindset to be like, I do it myself. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's what a three-year-old does. 
So I've had to chill out on on that as an adult and just I like helping people. And mm-hmm. when people want to help me, I should let them because they like that. And then the, the, then we're both enjoying what's going on here. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I remember reading a story probably on Reddit or something. And this mom says to the daughter, the daughter's telling the story. She says, my mom one day was like, I need you to go across the street to the neighbors and ask to borrow a cup of sugar. And she's mom, we have a pound and a half of sugar in the cupboard. She's like, I know. She's like, but we help them out a lot. And sometimes I like to just ask for something that's not going to hinder them too much so that they can feel like they're also helping us out. Mm -hmm. And that way they'll be more open to taking our help when they need it. Cause it was like a less privileged family or whatever. And they were just happy to help them out. And I was like, that's such a great neighborly thing to do, you know? And it's, yeah, like you said, it's sure you could probably do it on your own, but Sometimes it's just nice to let people help you and help out when you can. So Yeah. Fair. Yeah. And I think you already touched on this, but you need to have someone, a person or a couple of people that really know you from the inside and someone that you can have like open and honest mm-hmm. communication with and someone that will be open and honest with you and kind of like check your behavior and yeah. someone you like a sounding board to talk things out. Humans, we're another thing in addition to being very social creatures where our ability to communicate verbally is like, yeah. Well, that's what separates us from the other primates, right? Yeah. So, you know, your spouse, a good friend. I think a lot of people lack a good quality friendship. They have acquaintances, but they lack a good quality friend. Mm -hmm. And then what fills that role for a lot of people now is a therapist, Yeah. right? Chris Palmer's book, at the end, he talks about, you know, things that are working. It's like therapy is effective. Like therapy alone helps like 30 to 40% of people with depression, anxiety disorders, because, and in a lot of ways, he's saying it basically is just like a formalized friendship of someone Mm -hmm. that you can talk to. Yeah. So one way or another, you have to have someone in your life. Yeah. Another benefit of therapy and, and why it works is teaching you how to construct your social relationships properly. So maybe it's you that's the problem, or maybe it's you need to have better boundaries, or maybe you need to cut out toxic relationships so they can, a therapist can help guide you and in how to construct your social relationships better and then also help you manage your stress response to situations. Yeah. So your emotional cognitive state affects your physiological state tremendously. The stress response is a phys- physiological response, right? Your yeah. hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or HPA axis is the physiological things that happen in response to your brain's perceived stress. And it's your stress hormone, cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine. They elevate your heart rate. They mm-hmm. narrow your vision. They restrict your blood vessels, increase your blood pressure that causes your liver to spit out glucose. All of those things are preparing you for fight or flight. That's what your stress response is, is your fight or flight mechanism, yeah. which is adaptive when your stresses are almost always physical. <laughs> you have to run away or fight something. right? Yeah. But now what we have is we're rarely presented with physical challenges in response to stress. And we're chronically stressed out. So we're chronically in this fight or flight or overactivated HPA access kind of thing. Yeah. And those things that are adaptive in an acute sense in one burst of energy that you need really fast, if they're activated chronically, become really, really damaging. So now you have high blood pressure and now you have high glucose and now you have cortisol chronically elevated causes damage all over your body. You know, so we have all these things and it causes your mitochondria to start to malfunction. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the link between your psychological, emotional state and your physiological state. And so if you can learn to influence your physiological state, yeah. 
based on your psychological state. That's where therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that are super, super helpful and really can make a difference in both your mental and physical health because they're the same thing. Yeah. That book we're reading right now, Burn, it's all about metabolism. Yeah. And the part I was just reading, they're talking about the differences in the size of animals. And you would think that just bigger animals tend to burn more calories. And it's not actually true. Smaller mammals, smaller birds actually have a crazy high metabolism. So their energy needs are super high relative to their body relative weight. to their body weight versus like apes and humans and stuff. And the cost is they end up having a much shorter life. Mm-hmm. And then so apes and humans especially, we live really long because we're just much more chill overall. Our metabolism is much lower. Versus a mouse that's yeah, dead in the air. Yeah. Which is but the interesting thing is they said that if you if you look across species, there's actually quite a very consistent amount of heartbeats. Like you get about a billion heartbeats and that's it. And the mouse uses it up because it's going 300 beats a minute or whatever. It just doesn't live as long. And apes and humans, we have a much slower heart rate. And so, you know, we're just able to live a lot longer. So if you think about it, if you're exercising, you're increasing your heart rate. Mm -hmm. But the benefit of increasing that heart rate on purpose temporarily means generally everything is lower. Mm-hmm. So instead of having 100 beat per minute resting heart rate, you can have a 60 or a 80 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're chronically stressed and your heart rate is always elevated and you're always just amped up and stressed mm-hmm. out, then you're, you're affecting your longevity. You know, like yeah. you're, you're basically burning through a set, a finite number of, of heartbeats you have. Do you know what's funny is my grandpa had this theory that you have a limited number of heartbeats in your life, yeah. which is why he never exercised. He died of complications from diabetes in a slow, painful, horrendous decline that took way longer than it should have. Yeah. It didn't work out, his no. theory. But you're right, because on on the one hand, he was technically correct. There is sort of like a finite number of heartbeats that you get. Yeah. But if you have these high intensity bursts, then your resting heart rate is lower. And that's why yeah. resting heart rate is one of the doctor mechanisms or things that they would track metrics is what I meant to say. You can, your whoop or your aura or your Fitbit, when you wake up in the morning, if your resting heart rate is like high 40s, low 50s, like mm-hmm. you're doing great. You're fit right? yeah. because your heart is strong enough. It has to contract less often to pump the blood around. Yeah. But if you're stressed out or your heart is weak, then it's like, oh, yep. time. yeah. So stress, stress management is the second big thing. So yeah, like we said, it just, it needs to be part of, it just needs to be something you're paying attention to, right? Yeah. So there's different techniques or different things that are going to work for our, for different people. And it takes practice to yeah. control that stress response, HPA access system. Yeah. Something so, new that you've been adding in. <laughs> the cold plunge. Cold plunge. Yeah. yeah. So that's, it's, it's I don't everywhere know if, now. Everybody's doing it. I don't know if it's everywhere or it's just that I, I looked on Google at cold plunge. And so now <laughs> that's all I see is all my ads on everything are cold plunge. But I feel like all the podcasts yeah. are just talking about cold plunge. Everybody I, I'm not doing it. You yeah. guys, I'm not. Yeah. So Cold plunge has a ton of benefits, but one of the main ones is stress. It basically what it does is you're pushing yourself into a very uncomfortable, stressful situation. So all of that, those hormones are are releasing and you're going into this panic state and then your body recovers from it afterwards. And so you get more, you're just more resilient, right? And so it is hilarious how quickly it works. The first time I hopped into the cold plunge, I lasted 45 seconds (laughs) and it was like, I just had to get out of there. It was terrible. Yeah. And now I can I can go as long as I need to. Your body just really gets better at dealing with the stressful situation, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And it's such a funny, we've all probably jumped into Cold Lake or, or done something where immediately your brain is like, get me the hell out of here. And yeah. you just go into panic mode and your breathing goes up and like all, you're just firing on all cylinders, right? Mm -hmm. And it's funny how you can just teach yourself to just be calm, you yeah. know? I'll hop in the cold plunge and I have a few big, <gasps> and then I like spring it down, bring it down. Then you can just go Zen, you know, it's, it's interesting how, how quickly it can work. So the research shows it spikes dopamine. So, you know, good for dopamine's like a, we think of it as a reward, but it's more of a, a drive motivation, a motivator, and, yeah. motivation and drive neurotransmitter. Yeah. It also activates, so when you get out and you have to shiver a little bit and rewarm your core body temperature, it activates something called brown fat, yeah. which is, it literally under the microscope looks brown versus regular subcutaneous fat looks white. Brown fat has more mitochondria. And so literally your fat cells start to burn more energy to generate heat, which is an interesting thing because we tend to think of our fat cells as just this garbage can where everything ends up and it's just a storage unit, but it's it's not. Your, adip your adipocytes are metabolically active and doing stuff. Mm -hmm. So you have brown fat. Babies actually have lots of brown fat and especially around their spine. So your, your brown fat, you can activate more brown fat. So increases mitochondrial biogenesis. Anything that's good for the health of the mitochondria is good for your mental and physical health. Yeah. So cold plunge is an interesting one. Yeah. And then you already touched on it like breath work. Yeah. Right. That's also a big thing now. James Nestor's book, Breath, yeah. was a big one on nasal breathing. Your biggest reserve of nitric oxide is in your sinuses. Nitric oxide's a vasodilator. So where your stress hormone restricts, constrictor, vascular system, give you higher blood pressure. Breathing, slow nasal breathing brings it down, mm -hmm. lowers your blood pressure, gets you into more of a calm state, more of a rest and digest kind yep. of thing. You can do all kinds of interesting stuff with holotropic breath work. Sometimes people can get themselves into a mental state similar to like doing a psychedelic. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's all kinds of interesting things you can control both brain and body responses just with the way you breathe. Yeah. I think like along with breath work, there's meditation and yoga and stuff like that. I think that some like for me, whenever when I first tried meditation, I really struggled with it because my brain was just constantly being distracted and stuff. And it's just it's a process because you have to teach yourself to keep pulling back keep pulling back yeah but i think that breath work is such an important part of those things because even if i'm going to go to bed at night and my mind is just racing if you can just focus on like box breathing right mm -hmm. where you do the the four second in four second hold four second out four second hold that style of breath work can help you just distract yourself so your your brain just stops thinking so hard and you can just try to relax and try to calm and there's a ton of different ways to do it. Mm -hmm. I do a box breathing with my head on my pillow almost every night. I just find it really calming. Yeah. So that that does bridge us into sleep. So sleep is a super, super, super important one. There is not a single psychiatric disorder that isn't linked to a sleep disturbance. Yeah. The order of causation is not clear. It could be bidirectional. Is it that you have disturbed sleep and then it affects your brain so badly that you end up with mental disorders? Or is it that a mental disorder affects your ability to sleep properly or both or they exacerbate each other? Mm -hmm. Don't really know. A lot of people struggle to fall asleep. Yeah. A lot of people report poor sleep. What did we look at? Like 40 percent of people report sleep disturbances. Yeah, That's so a very high number. Yeah. For one thing, if the brain needs time for quiet contemplation, you yeah. need to sort out your own thoughts. So if the first moment of quiet contemplation in your day is when your head hits the pillow, then your brain is going like all the time. Yeah. You need people can find that in a variety of ways. Sometimes people like meditation. Yeah. I'm just not a meditator. Me Never going to do it. Yeah. But maybe people walk the dog. 
or I know some people that like bike to or from work or especially people with stressful jobs mm -hmm. have some kind of a peaceful transition, even if they just drive with no podcast, no music, nothing on, and they just need a time of quiet contemplation in their day. Mm -hmm. But if every single minute of your day has been filled with noise and people and podcasts and music and distraction, 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 TVs and screens and everything, and then yeah. the first peaceful moment you have is on your pillow, yeah, yeah. your <laughs> your brain is not ready to yeah. calm down. So you have to have some kind of a quiet contemplation part of your day. And I think the important part with quiet contemplation is knowing when it's productive or not, because I tend to have a little bit of anxiety. And so sometimes I'll catch myself thinking of things and I'll be like, why the hell am I replaying this interaction I had with a customer from a restaurant 15 years ago? Yeah. Anxious like, thought loops. Yeah. And it's, you need to, you need to let your brain do its thing, but then you also need to catch yourself when you be like, oh no, this isn't something I need to waste my time on. Let's just let this go. Let's move on. Let's think about more positive things or try to get past this thought loop that I'm in or whatever. Yeah. So yes, quiet con contemplation for sure. Let your brain wander and do its thing, but then also be aware of when it's not being a positive. It's yeah. not that it can always have to be happy thoughts. It just has to be that you're either working through something to get rid of it and be done with it, or you're deloading the the thoughts from the day. I feel like meditation tries to teach you to see something and let it go. Yeah. There, which is fair. That's so hard. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people that struggle to fall asleep rely on sedatives. Yeah. Now, benzos, sleep, sleeping aids, sleeping pills, sedation or alcohol, honestly. Yeah. Or a combo of both, which don't ever do that because you can die from that. Combining benzos and alcohol is super dangerous. Sedation is not sleep. Yeah. So in terms of brainwave perspective, it that's not sleep. You're just unconscious. Yeah. So to get proper restorative brain sleep, you have to find a way to wean yourself with your doctor mm -hmm. off of prescription sleeping aids. Yeah. They can be used for a short period of time, but to stay on them chronically is not good at all. Yeah. And even... Melatonin. People sometimes take melatonin in the evening. You should not take melatonin for a long term. Yeah. You can use it short term to fix jet lag or if you're changing your circadian rhythm or something. But melatonin is a hormone. And yeah. in other places in the UK, you can't even buy melatonin over the counter because they don't let you buy hormones over the counter. So yeah. people are just willy nilly taking this stuff. Melatonin also suppresses puberty. So don't give melatonin to your kids for more than like a day or two for mm -hmm. some jet lag type thing. It's not a willy nilly thing you should just be messing around with. And melatonin doesn't make you fall asleep either. You know, if you have insomnia and you can't fall asleep, melatonin doesn't make you fall asleep. It just helps you stay asleep, you know? So people will take like one and then it doesn't work. And so they take another one and then another one is, well, that is that's not the point of melatonin. You're not, it's not going to knock you out, you know? It doesn't work no. like a sedative. No. So if we're going to talk about things that can help you fall and stay asleep and have a good restorative sleep, obviously lay off the stimulants. Yeah. But past like noon, caffeine, yeah. energy drinks, that kind of stuff. Soda. God, I hope nobody's drinking that shit anymore. But Mountain Dew has more <laughs> caffeine than a Starbucks. Don't let yeah. your kids drink that shit either. Yeah. Obviously, you guys know better than that. So lay off the stimulants and caffeine. Some people are fast metabolizers of caffeine. Some people are slow. For many people, the half-life of caffeine is eight hours, which means if you had a coffee at noon, you still have 50% of that caffeine in your system at 8 p.m. Yeah. And then another quarter of that caffeine is in your system at midnight. So, yeah. And it's funny because we've known lots of people who are like, oh, yeah, I can have a coffee and then go to bed. It's okay, but how is the quality of your sleep, you yeah. know? And if you're only getting five or six hours, of sleep, that's not enough. Yeah. You know, you're doing, you might feel fine now, but eventually you're fine until you're not fine. Yeah. 
your sleep architecture is that in the first part of the night, you sleep in about 90 minute waves, 90 minute cycles. Your sleep architecture, the first few cycles are heavy on deep sleep, slow wave, restorative sleep. It's where you do most of your physiological repair. You produce most of your growth hormones. So that's where you repair your muscles and your bones and your skin and your connective tissue, your anti-aging. And then towards the later cycles of the night, that sleep architecture favors REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. REM sleep is where you do most of your emotional processing and memory and learning. So REM sleep is super important to managing emotionally stressful situations or trauma or that like PTSD processing, those kinds of things. You need REM sleep to be able to do it. Uh, one of the most potent suppressors of REM sleep is alcohol. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you're using a drink or two every night to fall asleep yeah, and, you know, this is the cycle that people like soldiers and people with PTSD get into is they start to drink a little bit every night because it helps them fall asleep. But then they're suppressing their REM sleep so their brain's not properly processing traumatic experiences and then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and then they need more alcohol and then they get less REM sleep. And yeah. And I think. I think that as far as alcohol goes, we've all had that time probably when we were younger where you get real hammered and you don't fall asleep. You pass out. Pass out. And then unconscious. you wake up however many hours later, right in the middle of the night, and you just feel like a truck hit, you know, and it's because <laughs> been poisoned. You're, you've been poisoned. You're super dehydrated. You haven't had any sleep. One of the major reasons people get hangovers from alcohol is because it interrupts their sleep. And they just, even if they got eight hours, they probably only actually got two, you know, because yeah. the alcohol has to be removed from your system. Yeah. So you do need melatonin. It's part of your circadian rhythm and in initiating your sleep architecture. Melatonin is made from serotonin and mm -hmm. serotonin is made from tryptophan, which is an amino acid. It's a rare amino acid and it's pretty much only found in meat. Yeah. Mostly people know about it from turkey. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like turkey dinner makes you tired. Well, not directly, but yeah. sort of. Tryptophan has to get transported across the blood brain barrier via an insulin dependent mechanism. So if you start to get insulin resistance in the blood brain barrier, you can't get the building blocks that you need into your brain for serotonin, which is important for mood regulation and also for sleep. Mm -hmm. So that's probably why there's this bidirectional relationship between mood disorders and sleep disorders. And those conversions of tryptophan to serotonin to melatonin require nutrient cofactors. The big one is vitamin B6, which is also from meat. Yep. <laughs> Pork is a really good source of vitamin B6. But all turkey, fish, beef will provide decent amounts of B6 and especially liver. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get you guys to eat more liver. So you have to eat meat for good mental health. We talked about in the first episode how... People on vegan and vegetarian diets are at a greatly, greatly increased risk of major mental health disorders. And many, many people will report reversal of sleep disturbance and mental health disorders just once they start eating a proper human diet again. Yeah. A potent suppressor of melatonin is blue light exposure. Mm -hmm. So that's where your circadian rhythm comes in. You have these little receptors in the back of your eyes. This was all stuff that was actually just discovered like within the last 10 years. I think it's super interesting. They're called your melanopsin receptors. And they're specifically sensitive to blue light, blue wavelength light. And they think it goes all the way back to these little primordial creatures on the bottom of the ocean that first developed photosensitive cells that could tell light from dark and they could sense shadows of predators and that sort of thing. So then blue wavelength light is, is the last wavelength that gets filtered into the water at the, the deepest depths, right? The ocean looks blue. And so those photosensitive cells have carried through into the eyes of, you know, many, many, many creatures. It goes way, way, way back in the evolutionary tree. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that people who are blind but still have their eyeballs will have a natural circadian rhythm mm -hmm. because they will be able to tell when is day and when is night. Right. 
people who are blind but have lost their eyes from an injury or an accident or something like that will not. They, mm. they don't have proper sleep and wake cycles. So those photosensitive cells are independent of your vision, which I think is super. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Yeah. So blue light exposure, all these LEDs yeah. are screaming blue light into our eyes from our screens, our phones, our TVs, our iPads yep. late at night after it's dark out and we should be only seeing darkness or red and orange wavelength light from the setting sun and fire. Right. This is what I think is so neat is that the orange and red wavelength light from fire does not interrupt your sleep at all. So yep. the number of people that go camping in the summer and they're actually exposed to natural bright sunlight in the morning, darkness when it's dark and nothing but fire past dark. You're like, man, I sleep so great. And you're yeah. like, yes, <laughs> because you're finally getting natural, normal light exposure. Yeah. And it's funny because technology is aware of this and catching up, right? Yeah. Like it used to be when I, one of my older phones, we had to download a, a blue light filter on it. And now my phone's, I don't know, two or three years old and it has a, one that's already in there. And yeah. so I have it timed so that at eight o'clock, it just filters out the blue light and then you can still see perfectly fine. It's just less blue light. Yeah. I've talked before about our, our lights in our house, but we bought these five years ago when they were less common, but now it's super common. You can find dimmable LEDs that don't just dim, they change color as well. Yeah. So in offices where they want to stimulate work, they'll often have a really high Kelvin level of light. It'll be like 6,000 K, but the setting sun is closer to 2000. So we have lights that I think they max out at three or 3,500 or something. And then they dim down to 2000 K, but you can find at any hardware store now lights that will dim and, and change color from blue to red light, yeah. which is just such an easy switch to make. If you have lamps and ceiling fixtures and stuff, you know, yeah. throw a dimmer on there, dim the lights down. Yeah. It doesn't have to be all fancy and automatic like ours does, but <laughs> you can make a, a pretty easy change just by putting phone settings on properly and dimming your lights at night. Yeah. Turn, Ideally, try not to be on your screen past like 8 p.m. Yeah. Last couple hours before bed, assuming your bedtime is 10 or 11. TV's off, screen's off, overhead lights off. Even if you don't have the fancy light bulbs and dimmers and stuff, just like a lamp with a low shade, just yeah. like dim things. Even like candlelight is nice. Yeah. Romantic. Romantic. Yeah. Get yourself, get your brain in the, in the mindset of sleep based on the light. And then the other thing is anchoring what is daylight. So getting outside and getting natural light exposure with no sunglasses as early as possible in the day. Yeah. So your brain needs to know now is morning, now is night. Yeah. What we have now is this sort of like chronic dusk where it's never bright enough in the daytime and it's never dark enough at nighttime. And our brain is just sort of like yeah. all the time and not sure when should we be awake, when should we sleep. Yeah. Because even those bright lights that we have in our house, they don't compare to the, the lumens you get from the sun. You know, like there's 10%. Just, it's, it's not even yeah. close. Yeah. The amount of light energy you're getting from the sun is drastically higher than the amount of light you're getting from a fully illuminated building, you know? Yeah. And that's why in the grit grind, that was one of the things was 10 minutes of morning sun exposure as yeah. early as possible in the day, because that's actually a sleep thing. It's yeah. not a. And if you've, the best way to pay attention to that is if you, you're outside going for a walk or a run. And you're out in the sun without sunglasses, and then you walk into a fully illuminated room, and it's dark as hell in there. You're just <laughs> yeah. like, oh my god, like I can't see anything in here, you know? Yeah. Even fully illuminated, those rooms are way, way darker. Yeah. So talking about habits for good sleep, get outside, get natural light exposure as early as possible in the day. Yeah. Lay off the stimulants by noonish, yeah. ideally. You got to eat meat. You need tryptophan, and you need all your B vitamins. Eat some liver. REM sleep. 
also requires acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is one of your primary neurotransmitters, which requires choline. Choline is also a rare nutrient and something that's only been well understood, the importance of it more recently within the last few years. The best source of choline is egg yolks. Mm. So acetylcholine is usually an activating neurotransmitter, but it's interesting that you need it during sleep. You need it to initiate REM sleep. But REM sleep is actually a very active state in your brain, even though you're offline, (laughs) you're asleep. But it's when you're actively processing things from short-term memory into long-term memory and you're sorting out emotionality and that's that's when you have your dreams and that's your brain sorting everything out. Like I said, REM sleep happens, the majority of it happens later in your sleep cycle, so towards the last two hours of the night. So if you're chronically sleeping between six and seven hours, you're almost always missing 90% of your REM sleep. So even though you're like, oh, I slept six and a half instead of eight, close enough. Mm, Actually, not at all. So you need to be sleeping more like eight to nine to be getting a proper amount of REM sleep for your emotional health, for your emotional processing and stress management. Another thing that helps initiate sleep is not eating close to bedtime, just so your body's not in an active digesting state. You can just get into more of a calm state. Temperature, body temperature has to drop for you to initiate and stay asleep. Deep sleep happens at the lowest point of your temperature cycle in the day. So you can actually trick yourself into cooling off by getting in a really hot shower, hot bath or hot tub or sauna before bed. Mm -hmm. So you get yourself really, really, really hot. And you get a ton of circulation happening to the surface of your body to dissipate heat. Yeah. And then you get out of that hot environment and you're still leaking heat <laughs> all over the place. Yeah. And then it actually lowers your core temperature, which is yeah. a weird thing. You wouldn't even think, why would I get hot to cool off? Yeah. And it's the opposite with a cold plunge. You're not supposed to do a cold plunge before you go to bed yeah. because it has the opposite effect. You get cold and so your body goes into heating mode. Yeah. And so the furnace is running really hot to heat you back up again. So it's, it's counterproductive if you're trying to go to sleep. Best bet is to do cold plunge in the morning. First thing in the morning to really wake you up and get things going. And then more like heat therapy type stuff before you go to bed. Yeah. And then keep your room cool. Yeah. Just keep the temperature of your room cool. There's all these like bed coolie things. We have the perfect sleep pad, I think. It's a neat little machine that circulates cool water through little tubes. It's a mattress cover that goes over and it keeps you nice and cool. Yeah. Love that thing. Yeah, it's great. It makes, you know, when you roll over, sometimes people are like, oh, I don't want to be cold in bed. I like to be cozy. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no. You know, when you roll over and you get the cool part of the sheets or the cool side of the yeah. pillow and you're like, oh, it just makes your bed feel like that all the time. And the keyword is cool, not cold. Right. It, it certainly doesn't make your bed cold. It just cools it down. Because, you know, like summertime, your bed is hot, you know, it's like, oh, you're just sweating and you're like, don't touch me. And that terrible feeling it yeah. basically just helps to alleviate a little bit of the temperature. Or like women in menopause with hot flashes. Mm-hmm. That's a big one that helps a lot Yeah, is the bed coolie thing. The other thing too during the winter especially is turning your heat down. Yeah. So have it so that like it's warm for the first hour that you're in bed and then it drops down five or six degrees through the night. We set ours to like 66 or 65 overnight yeah, in the winter. Something like that. Yeah. And then something we discovered from having the bed coolie thing was white noise. Yeah. It has a little bit of a fan in it because it's circulating the water. And the first night we had it, you were like, oh, I can't sleep with this noise. There's no way. You're like, this is going to keep me up all night. And yeah. then two nights later, you're like, I can never sleep without white noise yeah. again. <laughs> again, you, it, it takes a little bit of getting used to, but I used to be a terrible sleeper. I would wake up to every little noise, you know, constantly awake. I remember going up to Ryan's once and staying in one of their cabins and their fridge was running and I couldn't sleep all night because of this fridge was running. <laughs> And then, yeah, sure enough, I was like, okay, well, we'll give this coolie bed thing a try. It took me two or three nights of tough sleeps, and then I got used to it. And now I sleep way better to the point where 
I have to put a white noise thing on my phone yeah. so that I have that background noise because that white noise just eliminates all the little bumps and squeaks that the house is making. and Yeah, birds and cars yeah. and stuff. Yeah, it's amazing the difference it makes. That's one of my best, as a person that travels professionally now, mm-hmm. one of my best travel hacks for good sleep is a white noise app on my phone. Yeah. And when I'm in a hotel, white noise goes on medium yeah. loud and then you just don't hear the ice maker and the elevator and the people in the hallway mm-hmm. and the doors banging and all that kind of stuff that wakes you up. It's yeah. the best thing. We highly are, recommend. We stay in Whistler fairly often and a lot of the hotels, they're right in the village and people are out partying and, yeah. and hollering to the point where most hotels have earplugs available on the bedside table. Little disposable ones you don't have to reuse, but we we don't need them because the the white noise machine cancels it all out. And honestly, it's amazing. Yeah. And for kids too, if your kid isn't a good sleeper, get them on a, a white noise machine. I think lots of people have that for babies, right? They yeah. make little baby white noise machines and stuff. Now you can just do it for free with an app. Phone. Actually, I think the one we have is it's called Baby White yeah. Noise Maker, something like that. Sometimes for I'm a baby and grownups. Yep. Sleep like a baby. Sleep I guess. Like a baby. So, okay, we've got lots of things for good sleep. You got to have good sleep, man. Good sleep sets you up to make better nutrition choices the next day. People that are sleep deprived tend to crave more sugary and refined carbohydrates. It helps you manage your blood glucose. People that have worn a continuous glucose monitor and then they've seen what happens from a night of poor sleep, how wacky their blood sugar is the rest of the day. Helps you manage your stress hormones. Another tip for the overlapping web of all those things is to teach yourself to sleep breathing through your nose. Mm. And you can do that by taping your mouth shut at night. It sounds crazy. Sometimes people are like, you what? Not like a piece of duct tape, like you've been kidnapped, but literally just like first aid tape from the pharmacy. My favorite brand is the co-op first aid tape. Just a little postage size stamp thing. And you just learn to breathe through your nose. Yeah. Helps you get better, more restorative sleep. It's your biggest reserve of nitric oxide so you wake up less stressed out it's good for your cardiovascular system the benefits of nasal breathing are immense yeah and if you want to learn more about that james nestor's book is great i listen to it on audiobook it's a good audiobook if you want to understand more about circadian rhythm sachin pandas he's from the salk institute wrote a book called the circadian code and if you want to just know everything you'll ever need to know about sleep that's matt walker Mm -hmm. his book is called why we sleep that one's amazing and if you want to get shocked and appalled and terrified into why you need to prioritize your sleep he's the guy he's at uh i think ucsf in california yeah he's great love him. i've yet to try the tape on the mouth thing but i really should i catch myself sleeping wide-mouthed all the time do you oh god i taped my mouth shut for about 18 months yeah before i retrained myself to sleep with my mouth shut all the time and this goes back to probably K2 deficient during my developmental years. My palate, the, my dental arch is too narrow. I've had braces twice. Mm-hmm. I don't breathe well through my nose. I've had asthma. Yeah. Breathing through your mouth also dries out your surfactant on the surface of your lungs, gives you more asthmatic type reactions to things, gets more particulate into your lungs. So you react worse to dusty air, smoky air, mm-hmm. uh, pollen and stuff. Many, many, many reasons why breathing through your nose is better. Yeah, It made a tremendous difference yeah. when I taught myself to sleep as a nasal breather, it basically eliminated my need for my asthma inhaler every yeah. single day of my life. That was like a huge thing. I, as much as it sounds insane, yeah, it's give it a try. I know. Humor I'm, me. Do it for six months. It's amazing. I'm a really good nose breather. Like the way it's supposed to work with your mouth is your tongue is supposed to be on the roof of your mouth, mm-hmm. not on the bottom. And I'm always like, I'm always aware that it's there. So I'm a really good nose breather through the day, but definitely at night I, I tend to yeah. And people that snore, that's why you have yeah. poor tongue posture and it's down and affecting the way you breathe. Okay, I'm going to start doing it. <laughs> yeah. I have the tape. I have my favorite brand. I'll give you some. I watched a video the other day of this guy. It's a tape company that's selling it and this guy's pulling it off of his beard. 
Uh, but that's their whole thing. Is it supposed to be okay to pull off of facial hair? Doesn't hurt. God, that still that looks terrible. You don't need much. Yeah, you know, all taped up like crazy. Just a little reminder to keep your yeah. your mouth shut. Okay, so bridging into the nutrition stuff. Yeah. So you need good sleep to help you make better nutrition choices. You need meat and certain amino acids and vitamin cofactors for your neurotransmitters. So you need tryptophan to make serotonin and you need B6 to do that conversion. Yep. You also need tyrosine to make dopamine and then norepinephrine and epinephrine are downstream of dopamine. So you're like activator neurotransmitters. Tyrosine is also yep. meat-based amino acid for the most part. And then all of the things you need to not eat. <laughs> Yes. Before we before we get into that, let's just for all the people that w- just heard all those words and were like, I recognize some letters, but all those letter <laughs> combinations are like, what? Basically, just eat meat. You got to eat meat. Meat is and the eggs. thing. Yeah. Meat, yeah, meat, eggs, liver, especially. Yeah, all of those nutrients and amino acids and stuff that Jocelyn was just listing off, like they're common words, is all in meat and eggs. Yeah. So here's the thing that I like. I can tell you all of the nerdy, detaily stuff. And guess what it always comes back to? Just meat. You got to eat real food. Yeah. You got to sleep in the dark and you got to move around like a human being. So I can nerd out with you to the nth degree on why, mm-hmm. but the conclusion and the takeaway that you need to get from all of this is just there isn't 47 different strategies for 47 different ailments. There's one strategy that yeah. fixes 47 different ailments. Right? Yeah. So you got to eat real human food. Red meat, whole eggs, liver especially. You can also do it with some pork, chicken, turkey, and fish, but really you have to, you have to have red meat in there. There's certain nutrients in red meat that you can't get from white meat and fish. Yeah. Okay. And then what do you, what are you not going to (laughs) eat? Sugar, flour, and vegetable oil. Mm -hmm. Oh, amazing. Have you never heard me say that before? Never. Why? Sugar and flour, refined carbohydrates with no nutritional value whatsoever. So the thing about nutrition is if you're eating one thing, you're not eating something else. Yeah. There is actually human beings, when we eat real food, have a very tightly controlled appetite and a limit to how much just food and energy calories and stuff that we'll take in. Yeah. So if you're eating just empty nonsense like bread, you're not eating more nutritious food that you should be getting more of. So people are like, how do you get enough protein in the day? You're like, well, I don't eat bread. So yeah. when I'm not eating bread, I'm eating eggs or steak or ground beef or something else, you know? Yeah. So you need to not be taking up your room in your stomach, essentially, with nonsense that's not serving you whatsoever. Yeah. I think that every diet, like the diet industry is such a like profitable one to be in because it doesn't matter what diet you start. It's going to work for the first little bit just because most people start a diet because they've been eating a whole bunch of junk. And by stopping eating the junk and eating other anything else, you're going to have some sort of temporary yeah. effect. And it's not that you've started eating whatever, it's that you've stopped eating whatever. So that's a temporary solution, even if you're like just eating nothing but vegetables, you know? Yeah, for the because you're you're no longer eating garbage. You're just eating vegetables, you're gonna have some temporary benefit. Yeah. And you'll you'll suffer longer term nutrient deficiencies from the things you're lacking on eating only plants later. But initially, yeah, you just remove these pro inflammatory foods. Yeah. So Sugar and flour elevate your blood glucose, causes insulin to have to come out in tremendous amounts to keep blood glucose under control. That process, if you chronically stimulate it, causes chronically high elevated levels of insulin in the blood, which causes insulin resistance. For the purposes of mental health, it causes insulin resistance in the brain, at the blood-brain barrier. So now things that you need in your brain can't get across because insulin can't do its job. 
Anything that lowers the burden of insulin in the blood helps that problem. So a low-carbohydrate diet can do it. Intermittent fasting can do it. You don't have to be low-carb all the time. You just have to have periods between when you eat your carbs. Yeah. What you absolutely cannot do is eat carbs every two hours, every minute that you're awake, every day of the week. You yeah. Just That will make you sick. Some people can eat carbs once a day, and they have a carbohydrate meal maybe with dinner, ideally post-workout, and then the rest of the time they're not. That works fine. Some people intermittent fast where they don't eat any food for 16 hours of the day. And obviously that lowers insulin. Some mm -hmm. people like us eat pretty low carb through the week and have one high carbohydrate meal on the weekends. Yeah. There's ways that you don't have to give up those things forever, but yeah. you just can't eat them all the time or every day. And really, it really just depends on like where you're at. You know, if you're trying to lose a bunch of weight or you're super metabolically unhealthy, you're going to have to cut it out a lot more than somebody who's quite athletic and just want to have more balance and be more metabolically flexible. They're probably going to be able to get away with carbs once or twice a day or somebody else might be once or twice a month or not at all you know yeah it depends the point that you're starting at i think it's in oh it's in my everything keto course that is coming soon it's almost done where we talk about the strategy for if i have a broken leg and i need to heal my broken leg i can't just look out my front window and go well all these people without a that don't have broken legs are going for a run so i guess i should just go for a run and then i'll be like those people that don't yeah. have a broken leg you're like that's obviously not going to work. There's yep. a, a rehabilitation strategy to get from having a broken leg to a not broken leg to a functional leg, right? Yeah. So someone that is metabolically unhealthy, and if you have depression or anxiety or bipolar or schizophrenia, you are metabolically unhealthy. That's what that means. There's no such thing as good health without good mental health. Mm. Then the strategy is different than someone that is in preventative, someone that never had a broken leg or doesn't have a broken leg. Yeah. Different thing. The other big one is vegetable oils. And you know, I'm constantly railing about hexane extracted processed seed oils, mm -hmm. vegetables involved. That's canola, corn oil, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, and soybean oil. Those are the big ones that you'll find on food labels. Read the label of everything you buy and don't buy anything that has one of those in it. They are high in an omega-6 fatty acid that is pro-inflammatory. Yeah. They need to be in a balance with omega-3s, which are anti-inflammatory. Omega-3 and omega-6 need to be in a balance of about two omega-6s to one omega-3. Omega-3s, EPA, and DHA come from seafood, obviously oily cold water fish, but also grass-fed meat and pastured eggs. Omega-6 fats, you do need some, but a very small amount should come from nuts and seeds. Mm -hmm. And they should be in a ratio of about two omega-6 to one omega-3. The ratio right now is about 20 omega-6 to one omega-3. People don't eat nearly enough omega-3s and they eat way too much absurdly high amount up to 70 percent of fat calories are coming from these like industrial lubricant mm -hmm. seed oil crazy things that are not human food yeah so number one you got to get those out of your diet and then the other thing that happens with these omega-6 fats they're polyunsaturated fatty acids the unsaturated part means the molecule is vulnerable to becoming oxidized to becoming rancid you can smell rancid walnuts those are toxic fats once they've gone rancid but when they when you put those fats in a deep fryer, every, everything in a deep fryer is a vegetable oil, is a seed oil. And when it's heated and when it's heated repeatedly, it makes more and more and more of these toxic byproducts called aldehydes that are the same toxic byproducts that poison you from alcohol, from the metabolism of alcohol. So one I saw I literally read two papers yesterday on high intake of ultra processed food linked to major mental health disorders. And one of them specifically with a high intake of fried foods. Right. And you can have a link, which is a correlation, which doesn't mean anything. But if you want to move from a suspected 
correlation to causation, you have to have a mechanism. You have to propose why this thing would be causing this thing. So this study showed that there's obviously a correlation, but that the causative mechanism is a toxic byproduct created in, in the high heat frying oils called acrylamide. That's a neurotoxin. So when you're eating like a cold pressed seed oil or a salad dressing is bad enough, eventually your body heat will turn that into toxic aldehydes and acrylamides and 4-hydroxynonanol and all these bad words, <laughs> scary toxin words. But it happens. You're ingesting them already in their toxic form if they came out of a deep fryer. Right. So one of the worst things you can eat is anything fried in a restaurant. So your sweet potato fries are no better yeah. than your regular fries. Even people on a low-carb or keto diet, your dry ribs and your chicken wings and things that came out of the deep fryer, also bad news. Yeah. So you got to, that's one of the simplest things you can do to just stop bathing your brain in inflammation and toxic yep. byproducts. And an easy sub is make it yourself and use beef tallow. Yeah. Oh man, beef tallow fries are amazing. Yeah. And beef tallow is higher in saturated and monounsaturated fats. So they're not vulnerable. Those molecules are stable at high heat. So mm -hmm. they don't become toxic and they don't make all those aldehydes and byproducts. So yeah, we go back to the old school way, right? Yep. That's how... That's how McDonald's used to be. McDonald's, I've posted, uh, Malcolm Gladwell did a podcast episode on, it's called McDonald's Broke My Heart, on when, when McDonald's switched from beef tallow to using toxic vegetable oils in the early 90s. Yeah. And the difference and, you know, how much worse it is for humans. Now. Yeah. It used to be. It's the old way. We need to go back. Other things that can be bad in the diet for your mental health are things that are bad for your gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. So this is the forefront of physiology and nutrition and research and stuff right now is what is going on with all those little microbes in the gut yeah it's a wild world in there and yeah. we don't really know what is up but we know for sure it has a major effect Isn't on there, the brain and body there's more bacterial cells in our gut than there is in us cells in our body like you you are more bacterial cells than you are human cells yeah. than you are people it's bananas so you're basically a walking meat puppet for yeah. your microbiome mm-hmm you're just the vessel that carries that. You're just a fancy looking suitcase for the bacteria transporting bacteria yeah. around the world. It's so wild. I love it. Yeah. Those little microbes are doing all kinds of stuff. They're digesting some of your food. They're making neurotransmitters. They're synthesizing vitamins. They're communicating with your brain. Like wild stuff's going on. Yeah. We don't really know what exactly is the ideal microbiome composition. We know some that are certainly bad. Mm -hmm. But the average microbiome of even a healthy person in North America is wildly different than a more free-living Mongolian sheep herder or something. They have a way different microbiome. Right. But things that are almost certainly bad for your gut microbiome are artificial sweeteners, especially aspartame. Mm -hmm. So your Diet Coke, got to cut it out. Not good. Not good. Very toxic. And then pesticides and herbicides, so like glyphosate, Roundup on yeah. your produce. So I think this is where one of the potential ways that a carnivore diet is so beneficial for people with mental health disorders or digestive issues or both, those mm -hmm. two things tend to co-occur a lot, is that you just stop eating plant foods that are bathed in Roundup, yeah. that are bathed in glyphosate. You should be able to eat plant foods. They shouldn't be toxic, but they're coated in things that are toxic. And the the safety research is often done in vitro on human cells and they go, oh, these these chemicals aren't toxic to human cells. But they're toxic to your bacteria in you. So they don't directly right. poison your cells. Aspartame is very controversial, but they do seem to have a very negative effect on your bacterial cells. And that has a very negative effect on you. Right. So the Environmental Protection Agency has a list every year. They call it the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. So it's like which produce is worth 
paying extra for organic because which ones are most likely to be contaminated with toxic chemicals? It's like strawberries. Yeah. Things that have a peel, like a banana or an avocado, yeah. are probably safer because you're not going to eat the outside of it. Yeah. And then you can even just make sure you really wash things or soak them in like a baking soda water when you get them home. Definitely always wash your produce. And then like lots of things, it's it's worth paying extra if you're going to eat them raw and direct and you're going to eat the peel. Yeah. It's worth buying organic. Got to peel your grapes. Just like in the Roman days. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's basically just don't eat processed food. Don't God, eat processed food. Eat you, meat. Eat meat. You got to eat meat. You know, we talked about the amino acids you need. All of these conversions in your brain and your neurotransmitters need folate. That's vitamin B9. Best source, liver. Zinc, really only found in appreciable amounts in animal foods, especially shellfish. Yeah. Oysters, clams, bivalves, that kind of stuff. So you need zinc. Magnesium, you need vitamin D. Get outside. You need selenium. Yeah. Your antioxidant systems in your body. People tend to think, you think, antioxidants like a big nutrition buzzword and they think like blueberries and you know vegetables and actually really this is like an emperor has no clothes kind of thing the further mm -hmm. i get into nutrition education that is not the best source of antioxidants first of all supplemental antioxidants don't work at all don't okay. even bother ever taking an antioxidant pill it never survives your digestion that's a waste of money antioxidants from fruits and vegetables also don't seem to be super effective mm. they, they can help a little bit some of the carotenoids from like your orange and red and yellow vegetable can have some antioxidant effects. Vitamin C can act as an antioxidant. Yep. But the major ones in your body are glutathione. And glutathione is made from sulfur-containing amino acids, methionine, and then you can make one called cysteine from methionine. So a supplement that does actually move the needle is called NAC, yeah. N-acetylcysteine, and it's a precursor to the body's primary antioxidant, which is glutathione. You can also just eat methionine, which, guess what? The meat. <laughs> if you're on a vegan or vegetarian diet, you don't need to Google vegan sources of protein. You need to Google vegan sources of methionine. Mm -hmm. like you need specific amino acids. And part of the problem is you can end up eating a ton of certain amino acids, but very deficient in the ones that you actually need for your cells to operate properly. Right. So even if you're like, I eat 100 grams of protein on my vegan diet, you're like, mm, but how many grams of methionine did you eat? How many? Yeah. You need to get the right ones. Yeah, NAC is a super interesting one. Yeah. They've, they've done all kinds of studies and tests and has multi-uses. It's good for dealing with amphetamine damage. Yeah. It's good for helping people with alcohol problems. It's just like this wonder drug that seems to just fix all the things. Yeah, it's crazy. It's been used clinically in the hospital for Tylenol overdose. Mm -hmm. They give high-dose NAC to help the liver process acetaminophen overdose for like 30 years or more. That's a well-known yeah. treatment. People trying to quit drinking, taking NAC helps. If you've been drinking, <laughs> if you've ever been out drinking with David, you'll know he'll give you an NAC and tell you to take it before <laughs> bed because he's always looking after everybody. <laughs> helps with hangovers. It does. And what it does is like the alcohol, if somebody is an alcoholic, they can't just immediately stop drinking alcohol or they'll die. But the NAC negates the effects of alcohol. So it allows them to not get drunk or tipsy as much and still be able to like consume some alcohol. So if they have a job or something, they can, you know, have a drink that they need and the NAC helps to alleviate some of the, the symptoms. So don't take NAC if you're looking to get drunk. <laughs> I don't take, take it before. after so that it helps to repair the damage that's that's been done. Yeah. But because it reduces oxidative stress, it has been shown to be effective for treatment of depression and anxiety when yeah. you have an inflammation and oxidative stress. 
from probably a stress or emotional state or a poor diet. And you see it's been shown to be effective there. And like really pretty safe. Yeah. There's really no like negative. Pregnant women, pregnant women can, take can take it. They've, gi- they've given it to kids for yeah. acetaminophen overdoses and stuff. So it's like a, a totally safe It is option. like go Google NAC. It is a crazy little, yeah. little wonder drug, wonder supplement. Because it's really just, it's N-acetylcysteine. It's really just an amino acid yeah. that helps you make your own antioxidants yeah. better. Interestingly enough, melatonin is actually the primary antioxidant within the mitochondria. So we tend to think of melatonin as only a sleep, sleepy hormone. Mm -hmm. It's actually the primary antioxidant that keeps your mitochondria healthy. So again, you need that. You need to produce proper melatonin, but you need tryptophan and you need serotonin and you need your B vitamins to do that, to keep your mitochondria healthy. You also have superoxide dismutase, SOD, a major antioxidant that deals with hydrogen peroxide, H2O2. If you think of putting hydrogen peroxide on a, a cut, and it bubbles, yeah. you know, it's like toxic. Your, cool. your cells produce hydrogen peroxide, H2O2 from just a byproduct of metabolism, but it has to be dealt with because it's damaging to your cells. So superoxide dismutase is the one that does that. You need, there's copper zinc SOD and manganese SOD. One is in the cytoplasm of the cell. One is in the mitochondria. Mm. Those copper zinc and manganese meat, yeah. <laughs> nuts and seeds too, can be good sources of those things. Yeah. Um, so again, we're just, what do we keep coming back to? All the nerdy shit, it comes back to what's the CrossFit line? Eat meats and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, no sugar. Yeah. Right? There you go. (laughs) You want to fix everything that ails you. That's the thing. Yeah. Magnesium is super important for like 300 different metabolic and enzymatic processes in the body. You should be getting magnesium from fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, but it's very depleted in the soil. So even if you're eating real food, you're not getting as much of the nutrients that we used to when we had better farming practices. So I'm not a big fan of supplements. I think you should get most of what you need from real food, but magnesium is one that's probably worth supplementing just because it's so deficient in the mm-hmm. food supply now, Yeah, unfortunately. Same with vitamin K2, right? It should yep. be should available, be in, but it's just not. in the fat. Of, it's in the fat of grass-fed animals, but because we grain finish almost everything, K2 is deficient in the diet, which is why yeah. I'm always pushing K2. Magnesium is probably worth supplementing. Also helps you sleep. Yeah. Right? I, if when I take magnesium before I go to bed, I have crazy dreams. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah. it helps you with your REM sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Magnesium is often in, you know, sleepy tea and different sleep supplements and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's often magnesium. I noticed when I started taking it, my... HRV, which is a measure of your recovery, higher is better, was all of a sudden way higher. And my yeah. resting heart rate at night was lower. Yeah. And I eat like a pretty, pretty good diet, right? Yeah. Pretty nutrient dense. Anybody that's ever been through the bodybuilding phase, like ZMA is such a common before bed supplement that bodybuilders push. And that's yeah. zinc and magnesium. Zinc, magnesium, and B6 yeah. is what ZMA is, which again, we've just we've talked about those things over and over and over again is how important they are for all of your neurotransmitters and your proper sleep hormones and everything. Yeah. So... Obviously, I keep hammering. You should eat liver. It's just so cheap and so easy and so dense and all the nutrients you need. It's yeah. like the ultimate superfood. Find a way to choke it down. I'm officially on the cut up frozen. Ah, I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped doing the desiccated ones. I just got over it and now I can now I can do it. It's and it's in its natural whole form. Well, you can buy a tray of liver for oh, three bucks. Yeah, it's, it's so, so cheap. cheap. So find a way to get it in you, even if it's frozen and swallowed whole. Yeah. Whole eggs. Try to get the best quality eggs you can. Natural fats, avoid the toxic seed oils. And then an interesting one for mental health is fish oil. Mm -hmm. So specifically, 
EPA and DHA, specifically EPA, yeah. icosapentaenoic acid. Uh, there is a plant form of omega-3 called ALA that's in like flax seeds and stuff. That, that one doesn't really do you any good. Your body can't do much with that. You can only convert it at 4% to the useful forms. Right. So ideally, we're eating fish, oily yeah. cold water fish. But even supplementing one gram of EPA a day was shown to be as effective as SSRIs mm -hmm. in relief, like short-term one to two-year studies. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. One gram of an omega-3 fat per day. It's one or two capsules, really. Yes. Nuts. That's nuts. Was as effective as SSRIs. And back to our first episode, what were all the side effects of SSRIs? Mm -hmm. Boner problems, <laughs> gain, weight, weight gain, or, uh, suicidal, suicidal ideation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All kinds of terrible stuff. Terrible stuff. Or... What's the side effect of fish oil? Yeah. Like fishy burps sometimes. Yep. That's a, you know, slight digestive upset. But even one gram a day is not enough probably no. to even do that too. So if we're talking about well, you want to start with really simple strategies to try to move the needle and even going for a walk every day seems like too much. Yeah. Fish oil. Start yep. there. And get the good stuff because a lot of fish oils are rancid just because they're mass produced and they're shelved forever and they yep. just sit there. That's one of the ones that's worth investing in like really well documented yeah. fish oils. And that's why it would be better if you just eat it from real food. Yeah. Salmon, sardines, mackerel and stuff, because then you know they're not rancid because they haven't been sitting on a shelf for it. Yeah. But ideally they come in a dark bottle, you keep them in the fridge. Heat and light are yeah. basically what makes polyunsaturated fats go rancid. So mm -hmm. yeah, eat some fish once in a while. I talk about red meat all the time, but yeah. fish is great for you too. Okay, so lots of details on yeah. just eat real food. Eat human food. Yeah. Meat, eggs, nuts, seeds, fish. Make that the bulk of your diet. Displace all the nonsense, yep. pro-inflammatory, non-nutrient-dense. The last thing we're going to cover today is movement. Exercise. You got to move. Yeah. Humans are meant to move. Yep. We are built for movement. Yeah. I was reading the chapter in Herman Ponzer's book this morning, and he was talking all about the evolutionary biology of how we became like upright and bipedal and how our feet went from now our big toe is straight forward and we don't have gripping feet like other primates like mm -hmm. monkeys meant for climbing. We're literally meant to be on our feet and moving around yep. all day long. Yeah. So there's kind of two major things that we need to have. And the first one is just general movements, right? Way too many people have a sedentary lifestyle, sedentary job. They drive to and from work. They sit in their office all day long and then they come home and they just sit on their couch and they watch TV. So they literally just walk from their car to the couch or maybe a little bit of steps in the grocery store. Yeah. So not even, you can just have your groceries delivered yeah, now. I know it's yeah. getting worse. So another buzzword lately has been zone two cardio, which is supposed to be like super good for your mitochondria. Yeah. And that's not cardio cardio, right? Yeah. If you're out of breath and you can't have a conversation, you're above zone two cardio. Yeah. So going for walks, being outside in nature, yeah. walking around. Let's, Tons of benefit. And I saw an interesting thing the other day. Now I can't remember where, but it was talking about your gastroc, which is one of your calf muscles mm -hmm. and how actually it metabolizes such a high amount of your glucose yeah. relative to the size of the muscle. It's not a particularly huge muscle relative to like your quads, or your butt or whatever. Yeah. So this, this whole thing of you got to spend time on your feet. You got to be walking and using your gastroc muscle to walk or, you know, you can sprint and stuff too. But like, Biking and rowing and all that kind of stuff is good in other ways, but it's not the same and it doesn't have the same metabolic effect as spending time on your feet. Yeah. So you got to move a lot. Yeah. Minimum 10,000 steps a day. And it should be more like 20. Yeah. 
You need to move as much as you possibly can. Take every opportunity to walk everywhere you can. If you have a desk job, go for walks on your lunch break. Um, get outside. Yeah. This is a two for one. Natural light exposure and fresh air and yeah. all that stuff is super good for your brain and body health. This year we decided that the whole year, no matter how cold it got, we were going to walk our kids to school. Yeah. In previous years, didn't happen. I'm a huge wimp about yeah. winter. I hate it. But we decided, okay, this year we're going to do it. We're going to tough it out. So we would bundle up. And every morning we would get up and we would walk. It would be like minus 35 or whatever out there. But we would drop them off at school and then we would walk through the park on our way home. And it's a mile maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's totally fine. It's not that bad, but it's just a good way to start the day and get some fresh air and get some, well, for most of the year, I was getting some light (laughs) in your eyes. For some of the year, it's too dark still. But just being outside in nature, it's super beneficial. Yeah. And if you're going to, put your time into something. General daily movement needs to come first. If there's a pyramid or hierarchy of what you should be prioritizing before you even add in purposeful exercise, like going to the gym, going to the gym for 55 minutes of exercise does not undo eight to 10 hours of sitting all day. So you need to be anti-sitting first, and then you can start to layer in strength training and high-intensity exercise. But yeah, priority needs to go to to moving around as much as possible first. And I think that somebody that is really struggling with debilitating, it's near impossible to just be like, I'm going to go to the gym, yeah. you know, like that's not going to happen, but you can get up and move around your house to start. And then you can get up and go outside and then you can get up and move a little bit further and you can like slowly incrementally do more movement, just moving around. Yeah. One thing that's coming this summer, we'll give more details in the future is we're calling it rock a week. An idea I'm borrowing from another affiliate owner, a friend of mine, we did an order of weight vests. You can do it with a weighted backpack or whatever. It's basically just throw some weight on and go for a walk. At least 5K once a week. Yeah. Wherever you are, if summer vacations take you to the lake or the mountains or wherever you are, get outside, go for a walk. Yeah. Throw a little weight on you because you guys are fit, <laughs> you know, and it's that zone two conditioning. Yep. Great for your mitochondria. Great for your mental health. Time in nature. Mm-hmm. People that live near parks or spend more time in nature is strongly linked to better mental health, better yep. metabolic health. Maybe that's your time that we talked about your quiet contemplation or your stress management time. Yeah. There's a million benefits to just getting outside and going walking. There's something about trees for me that's just, it's a thing, you know, like when we're Maui and we're going for walks and just looking at palm trees and, you know, all the vegetation they have there. But even here, my favorite campsites are the ones where I'm just, I'm in the trees, you know, there's just something that's just so calming for me to just be around trees. Yeah. So... I can't imagine like living in a place like Vancouver where it's every three blocks there's a tree. <laughs> yeah, there's a concrete jungle. Yeah. Yeah, it's depressing. And the sun yeah. is behind a building all the time. Yeah. The other really good time to walk is after you've had a meal. Yeah. Helps you manage your glucose. So yeah. if you have eaten carbohydrate and especially if you've had a cheat day meal, yes. just make it a habit to always go for a walk after your meals. Helps you just manage your metabolism, helps your muscles suck up. Your carbohydrate or fatty acids or whatever needs to get out of your circulatory system helps it go where it's supposed to go into yeah. the working muscles. When we're in Maui, we always, we go, we go for way more walks because it, it's Maui, beautiful. it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But we'll go out for a, a dinner at some restaurant or whatever. And it's always like, we'll go and have a 5K walk afterwards just because you have to, your belly is just full and you're like, oh, I and can't go to bed. I just need to walk this off. And you sleep way better yeah. too if you don't go to bed with big full belly and all uncomfortable and just sit there and your digestion's all wool. Yeah. So like three 10 minute walks a day, you're better off splitting it up into smaller chunks than doing just one 30 minute walk. Mm-hmm. Intersperse your walking and eat your lunch. Go for a little walk around the block, even if you yeah. have a desk job or do walking meetings or any way that you can find to spend more time on your feet. Yeah. There was actually, a, I forget where I read this, but 
they were talking about people, restless legs or just fidgety or whatever, tend to have a significantly higher metabolism just because their body is constantly making use of energy. So if you're the type of person that can just lay on the couch and not move for hours at a time, that's not good. Yeah. But if you're like, for me, I'm always tapping my fingers or I'm shaking my foot or whatever, and yeah. it's probably super irritating to be around <laughs> me, but my metabolism is just going, going all the time, right? So movement of any kind makes a big difference. It's called meat non-exercise energy expenditure. Yeah. And it's, yeah, fidgety movements can account for a lot. And even back to the gastroc thing in your calf, like people that like bounce their foot and mm -hmm. they're like basically doing little mini calf raises all the time. Yeah. Have better glucose management because that calf muscle is active and sucking up blood sugar and keeping it in check. But I think is crazy. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's amazing the difference in your calorie consumption it is just by being a busier person, you know? Yeah. It was something like a 10% difference between somebody who's fidgety and somebody who's not. And that's often what people are trying to cut out or they go to the gym and hope to burn an extra 300 calories or whatever. And if, yeah. You can do it by, by being a squirrel and constantly be moving, then great. So then we get to high-intensity exercise, strength yes. training and sprinting. Great for managing your stress hormones. So yes. the things I talked about earlier, when you have your fight-or-flight system activated, it's ready for high-intensity activity to fight or flight. Yeah. You need to let your body do what it was prepared to do. You need to discharge all those hormones and the high heart rate and the high blood pressure and the glucose and stuff it's prepared for activity yeah you can meditate and do breath work and bring it back down but like it's not the same as just you got to fucking sprint that shit out or you got to yeah. go lift something heavy or go to jujitsu and fight or like whatever you got to let those systems do what they were yeah supremely highly evolved and adapted to do so you have to to manage your stress properly have to have high intensity exercise in there yeah great for like your endorphins yeah. the rush after people always talk about endorphin rush yeah i think there's there's people out there that genuinely like exercise right they like the feeling of like suffering and then accomplishment and whatever and then there's plenty of people that don't and they they just do it because they know they need to and for me if i'm i'm not necessarily the type of person that loves to do fran and have that like <laughs> grotesque feeling in me i hate that feeling yeah but i do like to challenge myself and i do like to struggle so for me if I'm feeling grumpy and irritable and whatever, I know if I just go and work out, I'm going to feel so much better because I just let it all out, you know, yeah. in the workout and and I always feel better afterwards. It's like the cold plunge, right? Yeah. That feeling, that friend feeling fucking sucks, but like you get used to it mm -hmm. and you, you get used to staying calm in your mental state during it. Yeah. That's what I always say to people is I'm never going to be a meditator, but like assault bike sprints are meditating for type A people where in the middle of high heart rate and everything hurts and it's burning and there's you know hydrogens and lactic acid all this kind of stuff and you're like calm in my brain i'm like calm blue ocean controlling my heart rate controlling my breathing so that i can maximize my output i'm not also panicking and panic breathing and, yeah. and the whole thing so it's like yeah you teach yourself to stay internally calm in the midst of physiological chaos basically yeah i'm the opposite of you yeah. i to me Exercise is the ultimate feeling of freedom yeah. in my body. And I I love the feeling of feeling free in my body and feeling fully capable and fully able to apply my capability to the workout to my best effort. And if I feel like shit and I feel like I can't properly apply my best effort, I hate it. Yeah. So if I'm in a bad mood or I'm sick and I have a bad workout, it unfortunately never makes me feel better. It always makes yeah. me feel worse. Now I'm also mad that I had a bad workout. But knowing that 
To me, the exercise itself is the reward. Feeling good and free in my body is the feeling that I want. I prepare ahead of time. So it's why I don't drink very often because Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't want to feel like shit in my workout tomorrow. It's why I go to bed. I'm like, I want to feel recovered and able to smash this workout tomorrow. It's why I eat protein after I work out because I'm like, I want my squats to feel strong tomorrow. If I sleep like shit, stay up late or drink or eat garbage or whatever, any of those things, and then I I can't have a good workout, I'm mad about it. I'm mad at myself. So my my feeling good from working out requires planning ahead mm-hmm. to treat myself in the future to a good workout. I treat myself to feeling good in the workout. Yeah. And so you and I are different in that respect. So if I get myself in a bad rut, it's it's hard for me to get back on the wagon with just exercise. I have to do it with lifestyle factors first. Sure. And that was getting myself out of, you know, the rut of antepartum and postpartum depression with Dash. That was a big part of my body was not my own. Mm-hmm. And I was mad about it and I couldn't move the way I wanted to. And I couldn't, I hated exercise at that time and I didn't want to do it. It made me upset (laughs) every time because I, I felt trapped and not free in my body. So what got me out of that rut was at when Dash was about six months old was when I really changed my diet. Mm -hmm. And I started experimenting with bulletproof coffee and MCT oil. And that led to a ketogenic diet and that changed my body and changed my brain. And then I started to feel more capable and more free and more stable and back and yep. then the exercise came after. Yeah. So, and I think that's it just the indication that all of these things are intertwined, you know. Yeah. You can't just be like, okay, well, if I just take care of this one thing, everything will be better because if you're not eating well, your sleep is still going to suck. So, even yeah. if you're trying to sleep better, but you're eating like shit, it's not going to get any better. So, it's really the broad spectrum ap- approach. Yeah. And the most challenging thing with making these changes is it's not easy and it's not fast. You know, so you might only be able to focus on one thing. Maybe the first thing, the first step is I'm going to start going for walks after I eat or whatever. And then step two is I'm going to start like adding some more fasting time. Step three is whatever. And you just have to slowly but surely titrate up and start doing more and more and more and understand that you've probably been stuck in this rut for years and it's going to take a long time to get out of it. But if as long as you're moving forward, then you're good. You're making progress progress it's only when we just give up and be like well this isn't working because two weeks later i don't feel any better it's like, <laughs> yeah. well it's going to take longer you spent 30 years getting yourself into that right? yeah so and i think that's a good bridge into the next part so to change your habits and to change your ruts requires changing neural connections in your brain yeah and it requires something called neuroplasticity which is kids have tremendously plastic brains it means they can change and adapt and they're growing new neuronal connections and then they're pruning the ones they didn't need and you know that's why excuse me, human beings can turn out so many different ways Mm -hmm. because we're so imprintable and we're so plastic. But then as we get older, we really get into ruts. The the brain tries to take the path of least resistance and do as many things on repeat and autopilot as possible. So you got to be really careful what ends up in your habituated system. Yeah. And if you need to change habits, I think all of us could could talk to how incredibly difficult it is to change an ingrained habit. So anything that elevates neuroplasticity can help change the course. So exercise upregulates something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which increases neuroplasticity. It increases your ability to learn. So tons of studies that show kids and adults, if you exercise first and then study, you'll do better on an exam. So they did a program with high school students, like a CrossFit kids test where they did a CrossFit class and then studied for the SATs. And then those students that did CrossFit first and then study, did way better right. SATs, way better brain learning adaptation. And then what we're going to talk about in the next episode is all of the other 
new tools that are actually old. Yeah. <laughs> What's new is old, the emerging ways of changing your brain and increasing neuroplasticity. Yeah. The exciting future of psychology. Yeah. Psychiatry is going, yeah, lots of exciting stuff happening in the realm of psychedelics. Yeah. So in the next one, we're going to talk about what's happening with psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, mescaline, ayahuasca, ibogaine. Yeah. Yeah. All these really interesting, the forefront of psychiatric research, what's happening right now. So we're going to talk about all that stuff. Cool. So basically the best thing you can do for preventative maintenance and just dealing with your shit, <laughs> social relationships, healthy social relationships, healthy social relationships, stress management. Yeah, and you know it's something I we forgot to touch on that I'll just quickly throw in there. For me, a big stress management is hobbies, mm. like working with my hands and just solving problems. There's something very satisfying about like coming up with a problem and then solving it and having the yes kind of feeling afterwards. Yeah. Right. So we didn't really touch on that, like I meant to, but that's a big part of stress management. Mark, Mark Manson's book, Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah. Great read, super easy one. I think we have a copy of it at the gym if anybody wants to borrow it. A big takeaway for me in that book was he's like, the human brain needs to solve problems. Yeah. We're really, really, really good at creativity and problem solving. And if we don't have problems to solve, we start to invent problems. Mm-hmm. So people create drama in their relationships where there didn't need to be any. Yeah. Or we get addicted to fake problem solving like Sudokus and Candy Crush and shit like that. Like, yeah. We need to have a, a creative outlet. Some, and sometimes it seems frustrating. Like there's something mm-hmm. good about being frustrated a little bit, but like conquering it in the end. So whether it's writing a song or creating a new recipe or building something with your hands or yeah, it's very fulfilling to be challenged and, and conquer the challenge. For sure. Okay. So social relationships, stress management, sleep, yes, huge. From so many angles, sleep, you conquer your sleep. Nutrition, of course. Yeah. Nutrition's everything. So complicated, but so simple. Yeah. Meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, no sugar. Done. And then exercise. Exercise. General daily movement, high intensity training. And show up and do it with your friends. That's right. Cool. All right. See you in the next one.